0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Hey everyone, welcome to Calvary Monterey and our time in God's Word this weekend. If you take out your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter seven, Mark chapter seven for a teaching that I've called revolution of the heart, revolution of the heart, Mark chapter seven. And we're going to start off in verse one and read the first five verses, but we're actually going to get all the way through verse 23 today. It says, now when the Pharisees gathered to him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees, verse 3, and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as, the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Lord, we come before you today and we, Lord, desire to be clean before you. Lord, that you would wash away all of our guilt and shame. And Lord, that we would have new hearts before you. And we recognize immediately, Lord, in reading this text, that these Pharisees, they had it all wrong, trying to get cleanness, approval from God from the outside in. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you in advance for the glorious gospel that is ours, that you clean us from the inside out. And we pray, Lord, that you'd use this passage to teach us about this truth to a greater degree today. And Lord, of course, we continue to pray for our church community that you would Lord bind us together, even though we are far from one another. Lord, some people gathering at the church campus, others gathering within homes, others gathering online together with other believers in the church. Uh, People who don't know you yet, who are tuning in. Lord, we pray for everybody today. And we ask that you would bless us as we open up your word together in this different season and time in Jesus name. We pray it all believing and trusting that you can do these things by your spirit in Jesus name. Amen. Okay. In the story you have Pharisees and scribes. These are people who immersed themselves in holy scripture. Uh, but then they also took their own interpretations of that various uh, the various scriptures and built it or put it on top of the holy word M- more important than the scripture and what they observed was that some of Jesus's disciples ate with defiled or unwashed hands it says in verse 2 now mark is very careful because he is writing to a roman audience more than likely he's very careful to give us insight into these jewish ceremonial practices from that era and he helps us understand that this wasn't lousy hygiene on the part of the disciples they weren't just uh refraining from washing their hands uh, before they eat uh, uh, ate their meal instead they were not complying with all the ceremonial washings the pharisees practiced these religionists, they washed everything in a ceremonial way. Their hands, their cups, their pots, their copper vessels, and even their dining couches, they washed in a religious way, especially when they came back from the marketplace, lest any Gentile uncleanness in that marketplace come upon them. They wanted to be very careful not to be ceremonially unclean in the eyes of God. On the inside, These religious leaders were unclean, but they made a bunch of rules so that they would look good on the outside. And when they saw Jesus' disciples walking in freedom, you know, not washing their hands in that ceremonial kind of way, not going through the ceremonies or rituals that the religious leaders had prescribed for the people, they wondered what was going on. Why aren't they walking according to the tradition of the elders? And so they were compelled to confront Jesus. Now, after thinking about this opening paragraph that we just read in verse one through five, uh, you be forgiven for thinking that this has nothing to do with our modern time. You know, I can almost feel some of you right now tuning out a little bit like, okay, here we go. Jesus Pharisees, another religious dispute that doesn't impact and affect my life today. Uh, but, But this is a very important passage in God's word. I assure you, this portion of scripture has much to do with life today. This is one of the most important passages in all of the New Testament, let alone the gospel of Mark. Whether people know it or not, if I could say it like this whether they look to God or not, people are striving for cleanness. There's a universal sense that we are unclean. There is shame. There is guilt. There is a feeling within almost everyone that we do not measure up in one way or another a gnawing understanding exists inside of us. We're not clean and we need to be clean. Some will say that sin and the guilt that is attached to sin or the teaching of sin are merely human constructs lo- loaded onto us by people who believe in things like the Bible. And that, that's their explanation. And as they give that explanation, they say, therefore, I am clean. Some will pursue cleanness by adopting radical and dangerous ideas so that they can say, I am clean, I'm different from others, I am clean, my ideas set me apart. Others will pursue good works, try to be good people so that they can say, I am clean. Some, like the Pharisees here in this story, will turn to religious ceremonies so that they can say, I am clean. Others will turn to self-love and self-acceptance so they can say, I am clean. Some will deny that they're doing or have done anything wrong at all. They'll suppress that guilt so that they can say, I am clean. And some will turn to confessions and statements and buzzwords and hashtags to prove to their camp and to themselves, I am clean. But still, in the midst of all of that, a gnawing desire for cleanness remains. Self-justification is still the norm. Could it be that our collective desire to be clean, to be approved, and all the contradictory avenues that we pursue in our attempts to become clean stem from our brokenness before God? Could it be that so much of the upheaval in our world today is because of a sense of uncleanness? Could it be that Romans 3 verse 23 says it perfectly when it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Could the fact that we fall short of the glory of God be part of the universal human struggle? You see, the need for cleanness is mankind's biggest issue. We are unrighteous before God, and even the person who says that God does not exist will never find rest for their soul in counterfeit forms of cleanness. You see, because God is holy, human cleanness cannot come by human effort. The Pharisees and the scribes had thought that they could do it, that they could keep God's law, and even improve on God's law, making it more stringent, and that that would lead to their cleanness. They produced all these elaborate washing ceremonies to demonstrate their cleanness to God and to others. They thought that something they did on the outside could make them clean on the inside. But cleanness, it does not come by human effort. It comes from God it comes to the heart. It must penetrate the inner man, the inner woman, the heart. Only then can it be truly evidenced on the outside. Now, the Pharisees are a fascinating study because in their beginnings, they held a high view of God. They saw God as holy and they believed that his word was being disrespected by the people around them. They felt that they needed to protect the word, so they began traditions around the word. But over time, their traditions and their teachings displaced the very word of God that they originally loved. Soon, a low view of God developed, and they thought that they could be clean before the holy, righteous, transcendent, majestic God with simple ceremonies. But as this story from Jesus shows us cleanness costs much more than ceremony. So let's read how Jesus replies to their question. He said to them in verse six, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men you leave the commandment of god and hold to the tradition of men okay jesus here confronts these religious leaders head on knowing what we know of jesus and having read up to this point in the gospel of mark we're really not all that surprised but still this is blatant this is clear this is confrontational jesus calls them hypocrites jesus uses the scripture. He demonstrates that they have displaced God's word for their own traditions. They took the commandment of God and used it to make commandments and traditions of men, which caused them to eventually leave God's word. He says in verse eight, in other words, they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. And he quoted from Isaiah, the prophet, a guy who had hypocrites in his own day that he was dealing with. And Jesus applied Isaiah's words to these Pharisees. The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now, the question that we might ask is, did Jesus have an example of their departure from God's word in his mind? I mean, after all, that's what he's saying. He's saying, you have taken the word of God, replaced it with traditions and teachings that you've built on top of God's word, and then you've left. God's word. Did he have an example in mind? Well, absolutely. Let's read of it in verse nine and following. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer commit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Okay. Jesus here gives an example of them departing from God's word into their own traditions apparently what had happened is that they had not only voided some of the peripheral commands from God's word, but even some of God's 10 commandments. Here, Jesus points out that the fifth commandment to honor your father and mother had been violated by these Pharisees. He makes it even more stringent by pointing out Exodus 21 verse 17, which is a separate commandment from the fifth commandment which said that dishonoring or reviling your parents was actually worthy of death. In other words, this was (laughs) known by all to be a serious commandment. This is not a trivial commandment that you would easily mess around with. They knew it. Jesus knew it, but still they had altered God's word. They had tampered with the fifth commandment, the first commandment on the second tablet of the two tablets of the 10 commandments. And the way they did this was by creating a practice or a teaching of this thing called Corbin, there in verse 11. It's a word that comes from the Hebrew word for offering or for a gift devoted to God. And the way that it worked, according to these religious leaders, is that an adult child, when the time came for them to begin caring for their elderly parents, could begin dedicating all of their money, could begin dedicating all of their property, including their home. They could dedicate it to God by declaring Corbin over their belongings. It would be kind of similar to someone in our modern era choosing a charity that they love and saying, at my death, all my belongings go to this charity. They get to enjoy all their belongings until the day of their death. But then at their death, it would go to this charity. And the religious leaders had constructed this way for adult children to say, Corbin, my belongings, my bank account, my buildings, my uh, home, it belongs to God. It is dedicated to God. So when mom or dad came along and was in need, these adult children could say to their parents, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, mom, I'm sorry, dad. I would love to help you. But unfortunately, all that I have is tied up as a gift to God. I've dedicated it to God. All the while, well, they enjoyed their own uh, stuff, their own belongings. Because God came before family, no one could argue with it. And so this made the child exempt from helping the parent. This was one example that Jesus had in mind of the way that they twisted scripture. This is why Jesus called them hypocrites in verse six. If they had truly wanted to honor God with their hearts, they would have obeyed the fifth commandment. Their hearts in love and honor and worship of God would have directed them to care for their parents. I mean, Whatever guy, whichever guy came forward one day and said, hey, guys, I've got an idea. We could do this thing called Corbin where people dedicate their stuff to the house of God so they don't have to really take care of their parents. I mean, if they really loved God, when that guy came forward, they would have told him to get out. No, we don't want to do that. We want to honor God. We want to honor his word. And even if it's the hard thing to do, we are going to do it because God has put this call upon our lives, but human efforts for cleanness. This is what they produce. They produce hypocrisy. Why is that? Well, the reality is that we, we come to discover that we really can't change ourselves. You see the problem it's with the heart. So what we end up doing is lowering the bar some way or somehow yet keep the appearance that we are righteous. These men wanted to feel that they were keeping the fifth commandment to honor parents, but they didn't have what it actually took to honor parents. Their hearts were not right. So their little rules helped them feel better about their greed and their disobedience to God. Now we have to be on guard against this same dangerous spirit spirit today. You see our flesh, it craves, a loophole. How can I get out of this? How can I feel that I've obeyed or fulfilled my obligations and have been clean without actually being clean? How can I look like I'm righteous? What is the least that I can do? How can I convince those around me that I'm good? But why is it that we so often look the loophole? Why did the Pharisees create a cheap and counterfeit path to cleanness? Why did they invent easy ways to appear clean? Well, let's read on. In verse 14, it says, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me all of you and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Verse 16, which is in some ancient manuscripts, if anyone has ears to hear, Jesus said, let him hear. And when he had entered, verse 17, the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Now, Jesus's disciples didn't become unclean when they resisted the Pharisees' hand-washing ceremony. They, They weren't unclean because of something they touched or something they ate. No, Jesus said that uncleanness, it comes from within. He said in verse 15, the things that come out of a person are what defile him. What you have to understand at this point is that this was revolutionary talk from Jesus. You see, their culture was a culture steeped in customs and traditions and ceremonies. They constantly worried about ceremonial defilement and created a complex set of rules to protect themselves from outward uncleanness. So Jesus's words rattled the disciples. So when they went into the house, verse 17, they asked Jesus about the teaching and he said to them in verse 18, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see? that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus verse 19, he declared all foods clean. I'll pause it right there because that little parenthesis is inserted from Mark. He's giving a little commentary to Jesus's statement. And he's saying this meant that Jesus declared all foods to be clean. You have to remember that Mark wrote uh, during the period where the gospel was freshly communicated to the world at that time. And as Gentiles became Christians, one of the big questions was, do we need to also convert to Judaism? And the acts 15 council in Jerusalem had concluded that the spirit had not required that of the Gentile believers. So they would not require that of the Gentile believers, but still, There was some confusion and a little debate so mark is putting in his two cents and saying yeah we have to agree with that uh, acts 15 jerusalem council jesus declared all foods to be clean and jesus said in verse 20 what comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within out of the heart of man come evil thoughts sexual immorality theft murder adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus's point in this little section is that that, that nothing from the outside in could produce uncleanness because uncleanness is a matter of the heart. It's the heart of man, he says in verse 21 and in verse 23, that produces all manner of evil and wickedness. This is why human effort cannot produce cleanness. Human effort cannot produce cleanness because the human heart according to Jesus is corrupt. Jesus said it produces evil thoughts, which means it produces evil devising or evil schemes. Like God said through Jeremiah the prophet, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it or who can comprehend the depths of its sickness. Now that's the end of our text. That's the end of the passage. And if that were really the end of the story, then mankind would be in serious trouble. I mean, because what you have there, according to Jesus is a world filled with hearts that are depraved hearts that are broken. Those hearts then lead to a massive list that Jesus just gave of hurtful activities, damaging, destructive activities. Now this helps us understand the brokenness that's in our world. Every nation, every people group, every political party, and every educational system is populated by broken people. Even the best laid plans and the best laid philosophies are tainted by the sinful hearts of humanity. This is a major difference in the Christian's view of the world. We know that mankind is not basically good, but that evil is bound up in the heart of man. But that's not the end of the story. We also know that there is hope. Though we cannot make ourselves clean, Jesus Christ can make us clean by his blood. Ephesians one verse seven says that in him we have Redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That is cleanness that we receive because of the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, the heart of man is sick, but Jesus came to die for our sick and sinful hearts. He came to give us life. Just as he was raised from death, He came to resurrect our hearts back to life. And for those who believe in Jesus, the path forward is clear. Romans 6 verse 4 tells us that we get newness of life with him. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 tells us that we are new creations in him. Colossians 3 verse 10 tells us that we, we gain a new self when we get Jesus and that we're to put on our new self every single day of our lives and Ephesians chapter two verse 24 tells us that this new self has been made in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness and Ezekiel 36 26 tells us that God promised he would give his people new hearts. And in Christ, that's exactly what he has done. So in him, we have new life. We're new creatures. We have a new self that's been made in the likeness of God, and we get new hearts from God. Now, this newness, it requires a new birth. That's why Jesus said in John 3, verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again, born anew, born afresh, born of the spirit, born a second time, born again. And this new birth allows you to pursue an altogether different type of human experience. No longer is someone like this bound to abide by a heart that is sick with sin. But now you can follow the spirit. He's working in your heart. And as you walk in the spirit, you are pursuing the dynamic life of the new self that Jesus has created. Putting on this new self is called sanctification in the new Testament. What happens to the believer who pursues sanctification? Well, everything Jesus said, the sinful heart inevitably produces that list of 12 things that Jesus mentioned there in verse 22 and 23 or 21 to 23. That whole list is reversed as we walk with the Lord. He said in verse 21 that the sinful heart produces sexual immorality. It's a broad word that covers premarital, extramarital, and unnatural sexual behavior. Any sexual practice outside marriage between a man and a woman is implied by this phrase. And when Jesus changes your heart, he turns sexual immorality into the utmost reverence and respect for his design for a man and for a woman. He said in verse 21 that the sinful heart produces theft, Before Jesus changes our hearts, we are bound to take from another what is not ours. We cut corners. We are lazy at work. We cheat on exams. We refuse to give to God. But when Jesus changes your heart, he turns theft into generosity and diligence and contentment. He said in verse 21 that the sinful heart produces murder. It takes the life of the innocent. It kills the baby in the womb. It mimics Cain by jealously murdering our fellow man, our brother. It destroys others through hatred. But when Jesus changes your heart, you begin to build up the life of others, placing them above yourself and your own desires. He said in verse 21 that the sinful heart produces adultery. Violating the marriage covenant is is the breaking of the seventh commandment. Every heart is capable of causing such long-term pain in exchange for short-term pleasure. But when Jesus changes your heart, you see marriage is honorable. Self-control becomes more and more your experience and you learn that you are blessed to only enjoy the spouse of your youth, Proverbs five eighteen. He said that the sinful heart, in verse 22, produces coveting. This is the desire for more at the expense or exploitation of another. It's a violation of the 10th commandment. But when Jesus changes your heart, you become content With what you have, and you rejoice for those who have more than you. He said in verse 22 that the sinful heart produces wickedness. Wickedness here means the schemes, the plans that are deliberately evil. They're not accidents, there's no confusion. The intent, the plan, the desire is evil. But when Jesus changes your heart, you begin to plan and plot for good. You begin designing a life, scheming for a life of righteousness, a life that will bless others. Jesus said that the sinful heart produces deceit. Our society is one that is drowning in lies. The human heart is prone to deceive all day long, even the best intentions are diluted with half truths and less than the whole story. But when Jesus changes your heart, honesty fills your life, and you no longer need to cunningly deceive to get your way or prove your point in life. He said in verse 22 that the sinful heart produces sensuality. This is a life that casts off all restraint and follows the impulses to addictive behaviors. Mindless consumption of video games, drunkenness, binge eating, whatever feels good, sensuality. But when Jesus changes your heart, you begin to grow sensitive to spiritual things. And you realize that sensual behavior harms your walk with God and relationship with others. He said in verse 22 that the sinful heart produces envy. This word has to do with the eye, the way you see other people. You see something in another that you don't like. You hate the good or the position or the success that someone else has. But when Jesus changes your heart, you begin to celebrate what God is doing in and for those around you. He said, the sinful heart, verse 22, produces slander. Describing slander to the culture that we live in is like trying trying to describe water to a fish. We just swim in the stuff. We swim in slander. It's all around us. So it's hard for us to see how life could be any different. But when Jesus changes your heart, you begin ever increasingly to praise others. And rejoice at the image of God that you see in them. And your heart begins to grow sensitive to those moments where you say an ill word about someone else that you know that you shouldn't have. He said in verse 22 that the sinful heart produces pride. This is the evil tendency of seeing oneself as better, more able, or greater than someone else. This is a universal trait. Of the natural human heart, though often disguised in false, false modesty, this is arrogance. But when Jesus changes your heart, you begin walking with humility. Everything you have, everything you are is seen as a gift from your benevolent father in heaven. And lastly, Jesus said that the sinful heart produces foolishness. This is spiritual insensitivity. So the platitudes and the morals and the views of the unconverted heart cannot be trusted. They are built upon unstable ground. But when Jesus changes your heart, you begin pressing into his word and learning the way that God sees things. Soon, foolishness is replaced with the wisdom of God. Let's go back to the question that this whole passage started with. The religionists had asked in verse six, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Jesus's answer, because unwashed hands cannot defile them, because the commandments of men cannot cleanse them. And because it's their hearts which must become clean. And I, Jesus would say, will make them clean. I will die in their place and I will rise from the grave. If they believe in me, new hearts will be theirs and then they will be clean. Truly clean. Actually clean. Really clean by my blood. If you don't yet know Jesus Christ, you can become clean at this moment in the sight of God and within your heart in a very real, tangible way by trusting that he lived the perfect life that you could not live and that he died to consume all your punishment into his body there upon the cross 2,000 years ago and believing that he rose from the dead to everlasting life. If you believe this, if you trust Jesus for your salvation, for your cleansing, you will be saved. And if you do believe this, if you do believe that Jesus has died for your sins, then continue to walk with him. For in walking with him, pursuing sanctification, we get to experience a revolution of the heart. Lord, we pray and ask that you would do this within us right now. Lord, this week that we would have our hearts changed. Inner transformation, Lord, is our desire. And we thank you, Lord, that it is possible in Christ Jesus. And we pray, Father, for every person who needs to know this glorious gospel message who is listening right now. We pray for them, that they would submit themselves to you. If that describes you, pray something like this. Say, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Thank you for sending Jesus, your only son, to die on the cross for me. Come into my life and make me new. Forgive me of all I've done and help me now to walk with you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray together.